Well, this, uh, this month so far, Pastor Mike has been kind of leading us through uh, kind of getting down back to the basics. It's like, you know, taking, taking a football at, at halftime when you're down 13 to, to 0 and saying, okay, guys, this is a football. You remember what this thing looks like? <laughs> the idea of the game is to get this, you know, on, on the other side of the field over there. So that's what we're doing kind of to, to start the year off. We're, we're getting back to the basics, getting back to the fundamentals. And we've already looked at love, obey, believe. And I want to add to those, those three words that were so uh, important to, to John Wesley that we're on his seal. I want to add to those trust. Trust. Because the, you know, to love, to obey, to believe are all relational words. And so in, in any relationship, you're going to have to have trust in order for that relationship to be meaningful, to be authentic, to be genuine. Without trust, any relationship we have with anyone else just becomes hollow and false. And I, I think it, it is trust which has been at the heart of the brokenness of our relationship with God since the beginning. It was the seed of doubt that Satan birthed in the minds of Adam and Eve. Doubt that God was, in fact, untrustworthy. And that doubt was a fear that Adam and Eve had less than a fully genuine and authentic relationship with God. That God hadn't really quite been forthcoming with them. And that he was therefore not not to be trusted. That fear robbed Adam and Eve of their innocence. It robbed them of being able to trust God and, and just simply take him at his word. So 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning begins by introducing us to a pagan. And Naaman is not just any pagan, but he's a competent military commander who has led his soldiers to victory time and again against the forces of Israel. To the Israelites, then, Naaman of Aram represented the epitome of what they both feared and hated. Now for the devout of Israel, the ones that still clung to Yahweh as their God and hadn't sullied their, their religious uh, fidelity with worship of Baal, to them, Naaman not only was to be feared and hated, but he was also understood to be a cunning and ruthless agent of evil and an enemy of God. So we're presented with this guy who is a bad guy. If we were playing cops and robbers, he would be a robber. No question about it. 
So to really understand all of this, you have to kind of go back and read the backstory. So if you read 1 Kings, you read the first few chapters of 2 Kings, you'll see King Ahab had been at war with King Ben-Hadad II of Aram, or Syria. And, and this is the Ben-Hadad who's the master of Naaman. Naaman's one of his generals, right? So they've been at war. The, 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 uh, the Assyrians come in. And so King Ben-Hadad and, and King Ahab of Israel get together and they say, hey, well, you know, let's stop fighting between ourselves. We can push the, Assyrian, the Assyrians away, get done with them, and, you know, maybe at least save ourselves from this monstrous threat. And so they do that. But the moment that, that the Assyrians are, are sent packing, Ahab basically stabs King Ben-Hadad in, in the back, metaphorically speaking. And he attacks one of the prominent cities of Aram, which was Ramoth-Gilead. Didn't leave any, any uh, time to waste. Um, and in that conflict, Ahab, King Ahab was killed. Um, and we'll talk a little more about that in a, in a minute. But his son, Ahaziah, succeeded him as king. Now, Ahaziah was a bad guy. Ben, uh, um, king Ahab was just horrible. It was uh, absolutely rotten to the core. And you can read about that on your own in there. But he was, was really, really just vile. Now, Ahaziah is introduced to us as, well, not as bad as Ahab, but still really bad. Not as bad as, you know, the worst person on the face of the earth, but, you know, maybe the second worst. <laughs> so, and, and they have the same problem. All these kings that we're talking about, the kings of Israel, had the same problem. Ahab was so bad because he did not trust God. Ahaziah is so bad because he doesn't trust God. And so he gets sick almost immediately after he's crowned king. And what happens is that he sends to the priests of Baal to see if they can ascertain from Baal if he's going to get better or not. Well, with Elijah, you know, Elisha's mentor, so to speak, Elijah says, you know, well, why didn't you ask the prophet of Yahweh. You've got one right here at your disposal. You could ask me, and I would have got the real answer for you. And because you didn't, you're not going to get better. And so pretty, pretty soon, Ahaziah dies. And all that happens, basically, Ahaziah doesn't have any children, so his brother Jehoram becomes king. So it's real fast, rapid succession here. And uh, so Jehoram becomes king in, his, in the place of Ahaziah. So the whole point of all, all, all of that is that at this point, Israel and Aram evidently agreed to a new peace treaty. As long as Jehoram, King Jehoram of Israel, and Ben-Hadad II of Aram ruled their respective kingdoms, they promised not to wage war on one another. Now that meant that they still had, you know, limited skirmishes on the border and things like that, but they weren't going to 
bring their armies and try to conquer each other. And uh, you'll find that if you read First Kings, Ahab had acquired the worst reputation for his backstabbing and was known far and wide as horribly untrustworthy. You could not trust this guy. And so, of course, King Ben-Hadad of Aram is hoping that he can now trust King Jehoram, you know. So now in the international politics of the ancient Near East, which this passage kind of deals with, with each change of leadership, there often came a renegotiation of political relationships, right? So when a new king was crowned in Judah, for example, the Egyptian pharaoh would send an emissary to him and say, just as your father and I had peace and, and had an alliance, let us also have peace and be allied. Let's keep this good thing going. The new king then had the opportunity to respond either in the negative or the positive, And whatever he responded with usually set kind of the policy between those nations in, in terms of their, their uh, foreign policy toward each other. Once an alliance was made, in the, in, like in the case here with Jehoram and uh, Ben-Hadad, it could not be simply broken without some good reason, without seriously damaging the reputation of that monarch and, and kind of vicariously his state or his country with the international community, with the other nations of the known world. And that was kind of a big deal, especially for uh, kingdoms like Syria and, and Israel that depended quite quite heavily on, on international trade that went through their land. But there was a loophole in such agreements. And that loophole was to instigate trouble between the two rulers in order to start a war. So if you were in alliance with somebody and you wanted to start a war with them, what you did was plant the seeds of doubt in that other king's trustworthiness. Right? And then you could provoke him to, to start a war with you. You just kind of, kind of keep chipping away, chipping away until he says, that's it. I'm going to war with you. So there were ways for rulers to start a war with another country even though they had agreed to, to peace or an alliance. So the strategy that was often used uh, was to get the other king to declare war first so that, number one, their reputation would be sullied in the international community, which meant often that other, other nations would break their alliances with them. And number two, that would put you in the place of the underdog, you as, as the one being victimized by this foreign nation, which often meant that other kings and other countries would send you pretty nice gifts, you know, to help you, uh, support you in the, in the war effort. And so it was... If you could get the other king to declare war on you, you know, that was, that was the way to go. Um, all, all of this plays out in the story of Naaman. All of this plays out in the story of Naaman here. After hearing of the prophet Elisha from the Israelite slave girl, Naaman talks with the king of Aram, who sends him with what amounts to an official letter of recommendation 
and a hugely generous gift to the king of Israel. This sort of interaction would have been impossible in the days of Jehoram's father Ahab. But since Aram and Israel were at peace, the king of Aram had every reason to be confident that the two kings would want to help each other out. We're at peace. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, we can, we can really have a, a good thing here. Aram would preserve the life of one of its mightiest generals, and Israel would be rewarded hand, handsomely for the service its uh, prophet would render. So what is so stunning here is King Jehoram's response. If this could be such a good thing, why does King Jehoram respond like this? It almost doesn't make sense. But again, you have to read the backstory to this whole account. And if you do that, you'll discover that King Jehoram was not exactly on good terms with the prophet Elisha. And this makes all the difference. We're told in in 2 Kings chapter 1 that Jehoram was wicked, though not quite as wicked or horribly vile as his father Ahab had been, as I mentioned. In chapter 3, we see that Elisha's anger against King Jehoram because of his wickedness is so great that he wouldn't even give him the time of day. And back then, for you to disrespect your king often meant a death sentence right then and there. Elisha just wouldn't even give him the time of day because he was so wicked. So when Jehoram receives this letter from the king of Aram, rather than, than seeing it in a positive light for what it could be, he places himself at the center of the whole equation. And we'll talk about that more in a minute too. He can only imagine, because of his blindedness, that the king of Aram is attempting to use the situation as a pretext to restart a war with Israel. Jehoram cannot conceive that Yahweh God might in fact still be present and might still offer saving grace to a people who trust in him. King Jehoram is blind. And so what we see next is Elisha initiating contact with King Jehoram. And he's basically saying, hey, King, all you see right now is darkness. Let me give you a little light. The fact that Jehoram doesn't even contact Elisha tells us that he only trusted in himself and had no concept of trusting in God. And we see that. Am I God? What am I going to do about it? And written as a record of the history of the Israelite people, for their king to place no trust in God was a condemnation of the sorry state of Israel's relationship with their God. If you have your Bibles with with you, uh, look at verse 8 with me for a minute. Elisha reproves Jehoram for his fear and for his failure to consult him as the prophet of God. I'm right here. God gives me his words. All you have to do is ask. And that failure to consult 
the prophet of God resulted in Jehoram's failure to obey the voice of God. You can't obey the voice of God when you can't hear it. You can't obey God if you're not listening to him. You can't follow him if you don't know where he's going, if you can't see him. So let's think about this for a moment. Let's, let's make it real practical for a second. Let's place ourselves in this story. Do we allow our fears to rob us of our innocence in taking God at his word? Do we do that? How do our fears rob us of our trust in God? I think it's easy for us sometimes to sell our integrity for a little bit of security. I think it's easy for us sometimes to make certainty in life our God, our idol, and then to to prostrate ourselves before that idol. How often have we told God no simply because we were afraid of the consequences of what it might mean to say yes to God? Does our fear, our failure to trust God keep us from obeying God? I know it does me. And if we don't obey God, who do we show the whole world around us who our God really is? Well, it's obviously not God. So back to the story. So we see Naaman, you know, Elisha sends word to the king and says, you know, send him to me and God's going to take care of it. And Naaman's going to find out that there is God in Israel and a God greater than any of the gods of Aram. But Naaman was a proud man and you see this uh, this, it's just so obvious. He could have just gone to Elisha's house, right? But no. Because it's Naaman, he had to bring his entire entourage with him, this parade, as Jill talked about. Chariots and horses and soldiers and dignitaries and the whole work, the whole shebang. And then it's expectation of Elisha the prophet is to come out to him, to meet him, and to heal him in some grandiose manner as befits the status and power of such a formidable member of the world's elite as Naaman the Aramean. In fact, we are shown here that Naaman had such a high opinion of himself that he simply assumed that he could command his healing. In truly pastoral fashion, I love how Elisha responds here. He sees him coming. The prophet Elisha instructs Naaman by sending a servant out to meet him. He doesn't even come out of his house. He sends his servant and says, Wash seven times in the dirty, disgusting Jordan River, yeah, and you'll be clean. You'll be healed. 
Now, I think we, we do kind of give Naaman a, maybe, maybe we're a little harder on him than we need to be sometimes because there, there are two things that this would have meant to Naaman, and maybe a, maybe a third here in a minute. Number one, Naaman's healing, it meant for him that it, it would be purely an act of God. And it would have nothing to do with Elisha's skill as a prophet or his cunning as a healer. In other words, there was no magic involved. It was purely an act of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that would have been hard to swallow for somebody who had never served Yahweh and who believed that his gods of his country were more powerful and greater than Yahweh. And number two, the second thing, Naaman would have had to admit that God of, the God of Israel was in fact greater than the gods of Aram. He would have had to concede that. Since none of them had been able to heal him, And then having to wash seven times would have meant, possibly among other things, that Naaman's complete, would have had to be completely humiliated before the God of Israel. In other words, Naaman would have had to admit that it was purely by the goodness and mercy of the Israelite God that he was able to be healed and that it had nothing at all to do with his power or his position. See, Naaman wanted to think, you know, I'm, I'm a big shot. Of course I'm worthy of being healed. Of course they're going to heal me. But having to wash seven times in the Jordan River would have meant to Naaman that he wasn't somehow more worthy than anybody else to receive divine healing from God, and especially from a God of a foreign nation no more worthy than even the least of his slaves. And that Naaman's slaves are the ones that finally convinced him to go and do what Elisha had instructed reveals to us that Naaman actually already exercises some trust in Yahweh. Now look what that would have meant to the Israelites reading this account. Just as with the fear of King Jehoram, Israel is now confronted again in this passage of Scripture with this own failure to trust God. We see here that God had not chosen Israel somehow arbitrarily, but on the basis of relationship. If his own people would not place their trust in him, God would offer himself in relationship to the pagans. And thank God in Jesus Christ he did that because I'm a Gentile. (laughs) Because the pagans, God knew, would trust him even when his own people refused to do so. That had a sting for any Israelite reading this. They had to call them back to accountability to their relationship with God. On the one hand, this served as a, a condemnation of the trust that many, many Israelites placed at the time in Baal, 
as a God equal with or even more powerful than Yahweh. But on the other hand, it serves as a condemnation of the trust that many of us here this morning place in ourselves, in our money, in our skills, in our intelligence, in our systems, in our corporations, in our country, in our government, in our candidates, in anything and everything other than the one who is truly worthy of our trust. That comes, that all comes from a fear that God really can't be trusted with our lives. And that's the subtext under this whole thing. How many of us implicitly believe that God is really not trustworthy? That he really can't be trusted with our lives, and so we hang on to control of our lives. I'm sad to say that I do that sometimes. And God forgive me, but I repent. You see, today we are pulled in so many directions by so many voices that compete for our attention and our obedience. We are drawn into the fears and the anxieties of others, into the intrigue of international and domestic politics. What are we going to do about the immigration problem? Does that concern anybody here this morning? What are we going to do about the threat of terrorist attacks? I know that concerns me sometimes as a soldier. What are we going to do about the Mexicans coming over the border? What are we going to do about the Syrian refugees trying to come into our country? What are we going to do about the rising cost of health care and the aging of the American population? What are we going to do about... Choose your, choose your fear. And I think a lot of folks are promising us a lot of answers... But here's the point. Are we listening to and obeying the one voice that really matters? Are we listening to the answers of the one who really actually knows the answers? In whom will you choose to trust this morning? And who will you obey? In Christ Jesus is found our ultimate answer to every plague, every ill, every problem that faces our world today. So my challenge to you this morning is that you do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Walk humbly with God. Recognize that even when you can't trust yourself, there's somebody that you really can trust, that you really should trust, and that's God. And trust Him to lead you. Let's pray.